Brothers and sisters, would you also uh, turn with me to Psalm 40, excuse me, Psalm 50, as well as Isaiah 33. We're going to have a a cross-reference this morning that will greatly help us understand how the Lord saves His people. So our primary text will be Isaiah chapter 33, verses 20 through 22, featuring mostly by way of interest and application, verse 22, and then I will... I will just read a little bit from Psalm 50 so we get a a flavor of that psalm, which is so important for us to understand how the Lord meets with His people and encourages His people, judges His people, and and saves us. This is the great topic from uh, that we have before us in Isaiah 33, salvation from the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, You are glorious and You are majestic in splendor. Uh, You rule from on high. The heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain You. And Lord, your glory fills all your temple. We pray that as we gaze upon your words in your Bible, that we would have a sense of their beauty, of the beauty of the Lord and the glory of the Lord, the strength of the Lord, the faithfulness of our God, the holiness, Lord, the holiness of your throne. And we would, Lord, with that, esteem and praise you and reverence you always. And let us always be amazed that you stoop to regard the things that are in heaven beneath your feet, even on earth, and the lowly estate of your servants. And especially, Lord, that you mean us to be your people, that you have determined from before all ages that you will be a God to us and that we will be your people. Enrich us in every way and strengthen us that we might understand this your revelation to us in Holy Scripture through Jesus. Amen. Do you usually stand when reading the Word, or do you usually sit? I'll oh, stand. Oh, well, let's 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 stand just for the reading from Isaiah thirty-three. <clears throat> Here's the word of our Lord: Behold, Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem. An untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there, the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, and he will save us. Thus far in reading in God's holy word. Please be seated. I love that hymn that we just sang, Tidings of Comfort and Joy. Of course, when we say that, we know immediately what follows. It's a hymn devoted to the incarnation of Christ, his birth, and the glad tidings is not merely that a king has been born to us, but it's that it's our king that has been given to us, and that is a king that will save us. He, It is he that will liberate us from every bondage, and he will bring us into the glorious presence of God Almighty. And in him we will have full liberty and rest. A deliverer was given to Jesus in the time of Jesus' birth. And so we rejoice in it as his church today, and we know what the meaning of that, because we know and we're very, very familiar with the gospel. What would that tidings of great joy have sounded like in the Old Testament? 
Have you ever thought about that in Isaiah's day? Did you ever conceive that in Isaiah, the people of the Lord were even in a more profound darkness than we are today? I know many of you read your newspapers and you're, you're getting all sorts of newses from any number of sources. And bad news travels quickly and uh, we have plenty of it, don't we? Uh, it, it is very troubling. I don't want to bring that up because we're supposed to be raising our thoughts to things higher than that. But uh, the people of God in, that, in, in Isaiah's day, in the middle of the 8th century before Christ, were steeply, steeply given uh, in, in to, to idolatry, to the darkness of the ignorance, the blindness, the chaos that results when one turns their back on the very source of life, on their creator, the only God, that is Yahweh or Jehovah. Israel and then Judah had taken up the idols of the nations because they craved what the other nations had. Other nations had sovereignty and empire. Other nations had sensuality and gross license in sex and even in their best religious practices. It was laced with all manner of indulgence. And they saw the success of the bordering nations. And they wondered perhaps Jehovah was not the God for them. And they were seduced to follow the way of the pagans. Now the Lord is very wrathful because the Lord had purchased this people as as a man would seek his own bride. And he had uh, redeemed her for his own possession and had adorned her with salvation and every precious gift. And he had given himself to her completely as the God and the spouse of Israel. But that wasn't enough. That wasn't enough for Israel in the 8th century. They had abandoned. They had abandoned Yahweh. For the most part, I will say this because in every generation, as the scripture says, a people will serve him. Generation to generation will serve the Lord. There will always be, there will always be a remnant the New Testament, we will say this, that the gates of hell will not prevail. They will not prevail. God will have a people. But we must find out why that is the case. How is it that now the most evangelical, the most gospel-centered of all the major and minor prophets of the Old Testament is failing in his ministry? No one is believing his message. Who has believed our message, he says? To whom has the arm of the Lord been, been revealed? That arm that brought Israel out of the captivity in Egypt, how could they miss that display of compassionate, redeeming power? How could they turn their backs on the Lord who showed himself to be the, the creator, the maker of all things, the ends of the earth, the Nile is his, all of Egypt and beyond. And now the people are being threatened with captivity to Babylon. That is the context, my friends. A very dark period in Israel's history. But to that people, the Lord gives an amazing prophecy. He, he has many things to say by way of encouragement to his faithful, his faithful remnant. But here he gives us something very very beautiful, which we, I think, will find extremely comforting to us. For unto us are the promises of Israel in Christ, who is to us Jehovah himself. 
for Jesus means Jehovah saves. The teaching here this morning is as follows. When Yahweh's rod of discipline, and this is exactly the situation, Judah is now following her older sister Israel into captivity. And, uh, and wrathfully so. Now, to, the, to God's own precious children, this is not wrath, but this is chastening. This is discipline. And that's why I mentioned the teaching here is that when under Jehovah's rod of discipline, what do you do? Do you grin and bear it? Do you, do you go to find entertainment and relief in all manner of amusements, as is the custom of our age? How many, how many channels do we have now for uh, our televisions? Or we call them flat screens anymore. I'm showing my age. Where do we find our comfort? Or do we now turn to science and medications? I, I grinned the other day when Dave, I was over visiting uh, David Wakeland's people and he, he announced, you know, the, the doctors have announced uh, finally they've invented a pill that will take away all pain. You know, what would people give? What would you give to take away all suffering and pain? All suffering and pain. Isn't that what people want? But fa- pain is among us. Pain is upon us. Suffering is upon us. For we have all fallen with Adam. And we are a race that is disgraced. But God has stooped to redeem by way of promise, by way of a mediator of the covenant of grace. He yet has a people with you. Under Jehovah's rod of discipline, when you come under his fatherly discipline, my brothers and sisters, you must look to Zion, to a place of stability, to a place of rest, to a place of finality, to a place where God and you abide peacefully, uh, lovingly, a, a, a whole universe of, of love and comfort in the Holy Spirit. When under Jehovah's rod of discipline, look to Zion. That's what Isaiah is saying here. Look to Zion, your only place of safety, and trust Him who is altogether sufficient to bring you there. When you're in trouble, your impulse should be as Heidelberg Catechism 1. Your only source of comfort in this life and in the next is God himself. It ought to be instinctual to the Christian. Three points. First of all, we need to understand that you can look forward to Zion with joy. You can look forward to Zion. Now, Zion, I need to explain that term. Zion is the, in the Old Testament, it had come to be known as the idealized place and the permanent place of God's abode. You know, from your studies in the Bible, that God dwelt with his people in many ways. He dealt with Abraham, not always visibly, but he did visit him in an angelic form, as you were and so he has many ways of manifesting himself. In Moses' day, he manifested himself as a cloud uh, uh, and as a pillar of fire. Uh, and uh, later, he uh, emblemizes his own presence with his people, as we found out this morning in the Sunday school, in the tabernacle. Uh, as is the, the tent of meeting, where God would meet with his people, always through the mediation uh, of his chosen priest, and so in Zion, we have not only a, a, a tabernacle that tra- traveled about with the people, but then we have the permanent structure of the tabernacle becoming the temple on the Mount of Moriah. But beyond the temple 
uh, beyond the, the, the temple plaza and all that was there in, in, in uh, Jerusalem, Zion became the idealized temple, the place where all pilgrims would finally see God face to face. And that was the eternal abode as uh, it was presented to Israel in the past. And so mention here uh, of, of Zion would be mentioning of, of tidings of great joy to those who still had and uh, the hope of Israel and who still remembered the hope of Israel. And so when Isaiah here says in verse 20, Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feast, your eyes will see Jerusalem. You have to understand that Isaiah is saying this in the year about 750 before Christ. He was, he was saying this before Jerusalem and its temple were completely destroyed and razed to the ground. And before Judah even went captive to Babylon. He's anticipating that by a good more than 150 years. And yet he is beyond that date. And he's looking past that event. Letting God's people know that even though that temple should be raised and fallen. You will still see Jerusalem. Yes, you're going to captivity. Yes, you will be chastened mightily. Yes, the Lord God, your covenant God, has been wrathful because you've abandoned him. But now he's going to restore you. And, and the place of your restoration is going to be permanent. Babylon is but a trysting place. And my friends, of course, this, this world itself is, is but a trysting place. We're but pilgrims. We're passing through. We're all going to Zion. That of course, we, we call it not Zion today as, as often as we call it heaven uh, or the new heavens and the new earth, as you like, or the city of God, as revealed to us in the book of Revelation. But you can look forward to Zion with joy. And that's why Isaiah has this marker here. Behold, in the Hebrew is always a marker indicating, look, you need to pause. You need to think you've been reading this, this scroll for a while, but here now, now pause. You are going to see this, and I want you to see it. How do they see this? They see it with eyes of faith, because God has promised, and he's able to bring about what he has promised. You can look forward, you yourselves today, with, even with the Israel's uh, all faithful, because Zion is where Jehovah celebrates with his people. You see? This is Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. And what, what are the feasts there for but for celebration? What are the feasts there for but of holy joy before the Lord, uh, of the uh, sacrifices of atonement, uh, of peace offerings and uh, uh, fellowship meals and things like that, where brother and brother meet together in unity, and, and that's very pleasant. And so we look forward to Zion because that's where God not only tolerates his people, but is actually celebrating with the people at feasts. And you can look forward to Zion with joy because believers will certainly see Zion. It says here, your eyes will see Zion. And this is the Lord who says these things uh, without contradiction and with certainty. If the Lord declares it, it will be so. And we can receive it as he is the most true God, honest, faithful, the amen. And it would be very, very much uh, sinning for us not to believe that we will certainly see Zion. He is delighted when we believe his, his promises, despite what our eyes see all around us, which in Isaiah's day was a great falling out, great wickedness, great darkness, great idolatry, not 
too dissimilar to what was, we see around our world today. You can refo- uh, look forward to Zion with joy, not only because God is celebrating there with his people and that you will certainly see it. Your hope is, can be a bright and strong hope, but it's because Zion is the only place of peace. Z- Jerusalem then, he calls it, as a metaphor for Zion, the same thing, is now an untri- untroubled habitation, as the word Jerusalem means. Salem means peace. And that's why he's using the other, the other uh, name for Zion, Jerusalem, because he wants you to understand that this is a place of peace. This is not a place of contention. This is not a place of wars. This is not a place of, of bitter anger or, or misunderstanding neighbor with neighbor or suspicions. This is where people are, each man under his vine and everyone, every woman uh, with her kneading basket, enjoying the fullness of the blessing of God. Every moment is one of joy and comfort and peace. Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation. You can look forward to this, my friends, with joy, because there, there, you will find peace. And my mother was a very educated woman. Uh, she, was, she, taught two, uh, she taught in two departments at the University of Havana at the medical school. She taught optometry and pharmacology. And one time I asked her, uh, Mom, what, what do you want for Christmas? All she said was, son, all I want for Christmas is peace, is peace. Do you know what we're talking about? I was 17 years old at the time, and I thought, well, I had no idea what she was talking about. For me, peace was getting my fishing license and going out and catching about 100 yellowtail snapper. That's a cheap peace. That's not the peace that God provides. God provides something much more profound and abundant. And if you know the trouble of your soul and you know the shame and disgrace of sin and its impoverishment the miseries attending our uh, our defilement then you will long for this blessed peace and blessed are the peacemakers you can look forward to zion then because it's a place of peace and not only that it's not a peace that you're going to gain for an afternoon i mean when i'd go fishing i'd be i'd be perfectly blissful (laughs) <laughs> over the reefs over there in Key Largo. I, I would be so happy. But, you know, I'd be there for a couple of hours and then it would wear off. And then I'd get all crusty with salt and then I'd get sunburned and I was ready to go home. I was not at peace anymore. It was transit. It was fleeting. It was fleeting. But this profound peace is there forever. It will be established forever. An immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up nor will any of its cords be broken. The imagery is of the old tabernacle, not the standing tabernacle of of David. In other words, that former tabernacle was prone to move. And the question here is, well, is God going to move with us? Ezekiel answers that, by the way. sees God depart from Jerusalem. He goes out the window and down the lane. He did move. But that would not be his permanent abode, not the physical Jerusalem. That is literally taken here. More, more about that in a second. Zion, this peace, this place of God dwelling with his people is not only certain, but it will be established forever. What a blessing. And my friends, the word and the marker behold is there because you need to stop. You need to take some time. This is the Lord's day and this is a day where you have time. I hope you have some time to do this, to behold. 
Because this vision will escape you if you don't stop and behold. You need to consider what the Lord is giving you here. It, it, it will not strengthen you in the least unless you park a bit. I, I literally spend time in this park, in this, on this bench with the Lord, and ask Him, please, show me the glory of where you're pointing me. Show me, what, why is this behold here? John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Same thing. When God says, behold, let's do this. Let's keep our eyes on what He's directing us to. The glory, but the, the, the greater your faith in Zion, your appointed place, the greater assurance that this is where you are headed. This is where your compass is taking you. And that you will certainly get there the more hope you will have, the more comfort that you will have, and the more joy you will have in this life. You can look forward to Zion with joy. Secondly, is that in that Zion city, the place, it's not the place that it makes for the joy. It's Jehovah himself. Jehovah is all the glory of Zion. For we read here, uh, uh, the, the, the place of his habitation will never be plucked up. In verse 21, there, Zion, there the Lord, that is Yahweh or Jehovah, the covenant God of Israel, in majesty will be for us. Again, calling to mind that great Christmas theme, Emmanuel, God, El, is with us, Emu, with us, Emmanuel. There, God, in his majesty, will be for us. Now, the Lord, well, Isaiah saw the majesty of God. He was a prophet. He had studied the scriptures. He had seen plenty of light in the scriptures, But in his commissioning in Isaiah chapter 6 is where the Lord really opens his eyes and and reveals himself in a much greater splendor than Isaiah really fully realized. And the glory was so intense that the the whole of the temple vision there was clouded over in a cloud he couldn't see. And Isaiah realized that although he was a holy man and and called to ministry, he was a man of unclean lips, and he dwelt among people with unclean lips because he saw the Lord in his majesty. In his fullness, his robe filled the temple corner to corner, and he was majestic in his kingliness over that whole temple, it filled it like, a, like water fills a, a container to the brim. And that temple, of course, represented other studies and biblical theology will reveal. The temple rep- uh, represented the whole of the cosmos. There's no place anywhere where God doesn't shine in his glory. But we don't see him that way. But in this prophecy, we're told that the Lord will shine forth even as Isaiah saw his majesty there, seated in the, the, uh, in the holiest place, above uh, the, the ark, in, above the seat of, of, uh, of mercy, the mercy seat, between the cherubim, there he will be displayed to the believer in his fullness. Now, you're directed to see this vision by faith. Because we don't see, God does not appear to us in any assembly these days like this, as he did sometimes in in the Old Testament. We're called to believe this by faith because of his written word. What he points us to today 
he points us to a day where faith will be sight. And that, my friends, is our fullness of joy, our completeness of joy. Jehovah then reigns majestically in Zion. You know, Christ came as a lamb, and he was maltreated, and he was contradicted, and he was abused, and he was ignored and spit upon and mocked and crucified. That'll never happen again. He's through with suffering. He did all that because he bore our sins in his body. And in going to the cross, the Lord Father was glad in that arrangement. And when the Lord God, Father, imputed our sin to Jesus as that lamb, he suffered, he suffered the wrath of God beyond what anything would be found here in Babylon in captivity for God's Israel. But I say this, but he came as a servant But in the end, we will see him as he is, gloriously enthroned above all. And in that day, Jehovah is all the glory of Zion because God himself, Yahweh, will abundantly refresh his people. There the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. Now here I I want to show you, you, if you're headed to covenant, excuse me, to a seminary, you want to make the right choice. If you go to some seminaries, even in Texas, you're going to find a, a literalist and say, well, this is, this is literally a Zion, which is a hill. It's on a mountainside. And that hill will be a place of broad rivers and, and streams. Well, you know, any, any common sense will say that, that, that either there's going to be a, a warping into a fourth or fifth dimension, or this is a figurative language. You can't even imagine a hill that contains broad rivers and streams. I know, because I fly fish, broad rivers and streams, and they're not up. They're down. You've got to go down for the broad rivers. This is a place that's speaking to us figuratively of the abundance of the provision. The Holy Spirit, of course, being the, uh, the, the, the beautiful picture of the watering of God uh, in the Scriptures. And so life is being issued. Life is being sustained. Life, abundant. The, the, the first settlers in Kentucky, as soon as they crossed the Alleghenies, they, they came into a place that was networked with many, many waters. Tennessee, you should see the map, the topology of Tennessee and Kentucky. It's a veining, it's a veining of, of rivers and streams and rivulets joining into broader waters and finally culminating in, into the massive rivers of Ohio River and, 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 uh, and the Mississippi. Yes, this is the place where we shall settle. We can sustain life here. And the God is a God of life. But the pagans are a God of death. Everywhere you get away from the only creator, you head to hell and destruction and death. There is no, no advantage to serving Satan. He will deceive you. He will flatter you. He will cajole you. He will lead you. And then he will eat you. A roaring lion. God is the one who sustains. And those who love life, love God. And those who love God, love life. Because that is what he is, the creator of the ends of the earth. So this figurative language is very important to understand. In in, in fact, it's kind of a play because Isaiah knows that the place of their captivity is Babylon. And Babylon is a place of broad rivers. (laughs) You might like it there. 
By the way, many of the, of the Jews that went there in captivity stayed there. They assimilated. They didn't go back. When the remnant was called to, go, to repopulate Judah or Jerusalem, they didn't go back. Why? They, came, they became accustomed to the pleasantries of the world. It's nice here. we got a nice business. We're doing all right. I'll go back to that place. A barren rock? Mount Moriah? Really? The holy habitation of God. That's, that's why the remnant went back. God is in her. That city will not be shaken. All other cities will be shaken. Babylon, gone. No trace of her today. No trace of that empire today. None, as it was prophesied. They were headed to Babylon where there might be streams and they might be seduced to stay. But these rivers here in, in, in Zion were meant to be the nourishment of the people. It's not a place of, of, of trade. No galley with oars. No majestic ship. The, the, as, as in Babylon in the book of Revelation, the, the whole glory of Babylon is the trading merchants. You see, it, it, you, you become rich not because you can grow more turnips than anybody else. It's because you grow turnips and you can trade. And trade is the secret for riches. But here, there's going to be no merchants. There's no trade. Why? Well, my friends, because God is sufficient for everyone. God is your all in all in the Zion. He doesn't just provide you some emotional support and comfort and joy. Everything you see in the world, in this present world, will be transformed so that God, to you, is that thing in the next world. Do you like baking? Do you like cupcakes? I know you had a lot your fill yesterday in the wedding, right? Let me put it crassly, kids. God, God will be to you as a cupcake. I'm not, I'm not being facetious here. The joy of eating something well-baked. Okay? It, it, God will be that to you and more. I like fishing. God will be my fishing expedition. And who knows what secrets will be there for me because God is sufficient and I won't need to barter. I won't need to save. I won't. He's my all in all in that place. No need for trade. Heaven is a wonderful place. Zion, you can expect it with joy. But you know what? If God is not there, you are misdirected. Please don't attempt to find something there that is not God. I know we're clever because we, in our imaginations, we need something tangible. Look, and even in in the Lord's Supper and in baptism, we're given sensible elements. God is not against matter. But the matter is, is pointing to something more significant. If we, let me put it this way. If we're going on the highway and we're hungry and we see a sign for McDonald's, we don't stop and climb the sign and chew it. We stop at the exit to the sign where it points and we go into McDonald's and order, uh, you know, the best french fries in the world, right? All right. That's what, the, that's what these things are pointing to. Heaven would not be heaven without God himself there. In fact, it would be hell. But having God, you have all things. And that is why Jehovah is all the glory of Zion. The third and final point is that Jehovah, or Yahweh, then is all sufficient to bring you to Zion. So how do you get there? I mean, you're a great salesman so far, preacher, but this is unattainable. It's not likely. And how do I know the way? How do, I, how do I go to Zion? You said, we're pilgrims. How can you guarantee me that we have a sure way 
and that my joy is not a bait-and-switch tactic like so many false prophets that we got plenty of guys in white suits on TV promising you all kinds of things, the world and more. And what you're telling me is exceedingly good tidings of, of joy. But how do I know? Well, it's because Jehovah has every resource. God himself is perfectly fit to bring you to Zion. And he does this in three ways. Jehovah is to you, not just a judge. Because he's your covenant God, he's your judge. Jehovah to you is not just a lawgiver, but he is your lawgiver by covenant. And finally, the advantage you have and the resource that you have in Jehovah is that Jehovah is not just a king, but he's your king. He's your king, our king, by covenant. Salvation can only be found within the covenant community of the believers who look with hope to God in his deliverance. Jehovah, then, is all-sufficient to bring you to Zion. Now, this is the gospel. This is the gospel in Isaiah's day. Because the remnant here need comfort. They need assurance. Everything seems to be failing. And pretty soon their own eyes will see, and their son's eyes will see, even worse devastation. How do you prepare people by that? You prepare people by that, by the word of God. Jehovah, first of all, is your judge. And for this, it sounds scary. Oh, no, no. I know God is my judge, but I don't want to face my judge. I'm running from I'm running from that. I thought I was to be saved from that. No, you don't understand. You don't understand the benefits of having a judge. And I'm just going to point out some features of of his judgeship, uh, and remind you that in Israel before they had kings, they had judges. Right? Samuel was was a priest, and he was a, a judge. And whenever Israel had a judge, what would happen? the people would find victory over their enemies and they'd have a, a season of prosperity. They would have peace. They would have joy. And then they would forget and then they would fall back into idolatry. The cycle would be renewed about every 20 or 40 years, I believe, the, the cyclical nature of it. Jehovah being your God and your judge is as follows. And that's why I want to say, turn to Psalm 50. Because in Psalm 50, we have a, a call to worship. And I'll just mention two, two verses. You can review this later uh, at your own. But I just want to say, this is the context of every time you have a call to worship. This church has a call to worship. And here's a call to worship in verse 5. Gather to me my faithful ones who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. It still pertains to us today. Christ is our sacrifice. We're gathering his name. And so God is gathering his faithful ones. And uh, in verse 6, the heavens declare his righteousness. God himself is judge to his covenant people. And then he goes on, and you can study this psalm on your own. He goes on and he elaborates to, to uh, the people. He always brings correction. He brings, he brings instruction and he's reminding them that they're, they're not righteous yet. And stop, and stop all of this sanctimonious sacrifice without a heart. Just remember, I'm your God and love me and appreciate all that you do for me. And that's fine. So that's the correction. You've gone into a little bit of a formalism. Every Sunday is the same. Ah, call to worship. It's God who's calling you to worship. I mean, if Donald Trump had called you and said, why were you late today? We had a marvelous breakfast. I knew you liked mimosas and my, my wife fixed them for me with her own hands. If Donald Trump did that, I would be shamed. 
But I should be more shamed if I don't come into God's presence here with a heart expecting to receive from him and, and love him and receive his correction. So to the faithful, he offers this gentle reminder. Be, be sure that your heart is mine. Have you, have you lost your first, have you abandoned your first love? Is the New Testament equivalent. Christ, by the way, who's judging the churches of Asia Minor does the same thing. To the faithful, he says that. But to the wicked, to the wicked who are in covenant, who have really secretly taken up idols and have forsaken God, he says to the wicked in verse 16, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? You hate discipline. I've been pounding on you like like a, a smithy would pound on iron. And all I'm doing is, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not sure I'm forming anything. I'm just making that iron uh, anvil harder by all my pounding. You hate discipline. You cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. There are wicked people that are in covenant with God, and God is judging. And by that action, he is, even week by week, upon the gathering of Israel, sifting his faithful, who are sinning, but need correction, and those who are wicked and greatly sinning and will not respond. That's the value of having God as your judge. And then we see that God is your lawgiver. Jehovah by covenant is your lawgiver. Now, I need to be a little more precise than this. Yes, he gives us the Torah, which is the law, and the Ten Commandments. Yeah, absolutely. Wherever God is with his people, he is to them the God who is enthroned above the mercy seat, that is to say, he sees the blood of atonement and the gospel is proclaimed. And wherever the true God is proclaimed, he goes forth with uh, the, 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 the two tablets under the mercy seat. Uh, that is to say, the Ten Commandments have to be in every church. It, it, is, it, is, it is not able to be compromised. Law and gospel go forth together as twins. Otherwise, we have no church and no gospel. The law drives us to Christ necessarily. And makes us love Christ for being the satisfaction for our sins. Anyway, our lawgiver is not merely that he's given us the Ten Commandments, but in this, the word in, in, the, in the Hebrew is, is hok, which means he gives us his ordinances. In his ordinances is where God meets his people. That is to say, the preaching of the word is an ordinance. The sacraments of God are his ordinance where he gives himself to us in, sign, in sensible signs and seals. Uh, and, and the gathering of God's people is an ordinance established uh, by his word. And so having these, he's telling, us, he's telling us the following. If he gives us the ordinances and he's reminding us that he's going to meet us there, then brothers and sisters, we're not going to fail to appear with God in Zion. He's meeting with us steadily in his ordinances because God is for us the lawgiver, that is to say the ordinance giver. The hoke giver. Do you understand what I'm saying? What I'm saying is that every Lord's Day is, as it were, a rehearsal of his final appearing in Zion. And if you do well here, Sunday by Sunday, if your heart is, is, is the Lord's, if you worship him freely and joyfully, receiving and rejo- re- rejoicing in the prospect of all that is here, Zion with all its peace and its prosperity, the majestic appearance of God in the beatific vision, if, if that is yours, my friends, then you're on your way. Now, abandon, abandon the ordinances. I can tell you by the authority of God. I don't care. what If you think you have faith, you have no faith. 
because there's only one God and only one lawgiver, one judge. And he has appointed this place for you. And he wants very badly to meet with you because he redeemed you. He purchased you. You're his. And you don't have any option because either you serve him or you deceive, your, you deceive yourself on thinking you're serving yourself, but you're not. You're serving Satan. There are no, there are no other choices. And so, my friends, be, be of good cheer if you receive Jehovah or Yahweh as your ordinance giver. And finally, happily, this Yahweh is your king, our king. What does a king do? He rides majestically in front of his people. Look, today's kings are sitting in back of a big desk and they're pushing buttons and calling the Pentagon, right? Not so. Not so with the ancient kings. They go forward in battle majestically. And they win. And the people trust him because he's the first one who puts his life on the line. And he's valiant. Yeah, Saul has killed his thousands. David is ten thousands. And we're talking about the son of David here. King of royal blood. The son of David. He's your king. He will subdue all your enemies. But better than that, my friends, you know what he will do for you? He will subdue you. Amazing. Your wife can't subdue you. She's trying. And she knows you're a hopeless cause. What is this pair of shoes again doing in the fireplace? You know, you say, stinky shoes from last Christmas, right? Finally found them in the fireplace. Look, we need saving. Jesus was born a king, although he was presented in mild baby form. The Magi saw it and knew it. Herod saw it and trembled. He knew what was up. His time was short. That's Satan's banner. Jehovah is sufficient because he's your judge, because he's your lawgiver, and because he's your king. And happy, happy, happy are those who believe because you are utterly saved. You can't help but be saved despite all your sin. And you can thank God for his complete sufficiency as a Savior to help you, to meet with you at his appointed times, to guide you by his revelation and rebuking you and correcting you. Somebody, If a minister corrects you, please, I know, the, in, the instinct is to throw up your fist and slug him. Okay, I know that. Thank him first. Then consider slugging him. But you no, know, no. Thank those who are brave enough to rebuke you. You know when a minister rebukes you, you know what he's doing? He may be, he may be witnessing $25,000 walking out of his door. He might not come back. But he loves you. And he doesn't want to see you destroyed. And he will rebuke you if he's God's man. He will correct you as God's faithful. Read Psalm 50. That's the work of God as your judge. You know, this is the very basis of a stable government in America, the three-branch system. The judiciary, the Congress passing law, and the executive branch. Our forefathers here knew it. This Cuban has come to know it and love it. That's what made America so stable. And as long as we stay true, by God's grace, we'll have the best government, form of government of any people in the world. Nobody's ever had this sort of parliamentary structure. 
It's here in the Bible. The Jews had it in Jehovah. The Jews had it in Jehovah. And this goes to show you how Christian our nation used to be. Remember, this may not even sound like a, like a Christian uh, preaching. But what we're preaching is Christ. Because he is that Jehovah. He is that one that says, before Abraham was, I am. And that is, that is the name of God. That is the tetragram. Jesus is Yahweh. Come incarnate to become man. It is he that saves his people. And we can be glad for that. We can be certain for that. We can give glory and praise to God for that. Let me conclude. Look, we, we all will experience misery in this life. We're fallen. We're subject to sin, and by sin we're subject to further estrangement for God, for more and more corruption, for more bondage to sin and misery. But you've got to, by faith, look beyond your time and place. God is bringing you to a place of his own abode. We're not at home yet. We're in Babylon. Sometimes we have to hang up our harps on the willows with grief. Why do you ask me to sing of the songs of Zion? Our hearts are broken here sometimes. But we know by faith where our triumph is. Jehovah God still reigns in majesty and he'll be known. And your eyes will see it and so will everyone, every other eye. Every mouth will confess. Jehovah Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He himself is sufficient to bring you to Zion safely as he's promised in his word. Take this day, take 15 minutes to start if you haven't done it, meditate on this message. It's for you. It's, it's, for, it, it's for your gleanings. There's more. I, I don't want to tax you by preaching longer. I'm never going to be welcome here again. But there's more. So you sift it out. Everything that God gives you by way of an ordinance or law is to remind you that you're not there yet, but that Christ is sufficient because he is righteous. and His righteousness is all yours. When you believe in him, he imputes all that to you. He puts it to your credit so that you appear before God as righteous, though you're not. That's the gospel. Believe in Christ. Humble yourself then under Jehovah. Your, your friend here, Isaiah, thought he was humble until he saw the majesty of God in his temple. And then he was humble. We think we have humility. We haven't approached it. He is altogether splendid. Let him subdue you as your king. Every sinful passion. The second table of the, of the, of the Ten Commandments. Adultery. Thieving. Speaking ill of your neighbor. The first movements of that, the the very first notions of that are condemned in the Tenth Commandment. And that's what we mean by covetousness. You don't have to marry your will to it. It's already speaking of your innate corruption. Think of that. And think also that the Lord has given you a covering over that corruption so that you will be exonerated. You will be acquitted in the day of His power. He will say to you, Well done, good and faithful servant. He will embrace you and show you your inheritance. Believe in the Lord Jesus who is all sufficient. And now may the Holy Spirit direct you into his majestic race. In the majestic grace 
and lead you surely to Zion. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his presence, his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To God, our only Savior through Jesus Christ, be glory and power and majesty and dominion. Amen. With your servant Isaiah, but how much more incomparably have you served us with your servant Jesus, in whom we have plenteous redemption, tidings of great joy, which is to all people. Pray that we would be a people that is rejoicing and looking beyond our, our circumstances, which are dark, to your marvelous light. You'd never change. And your promises are yes and amen in Christ whom we, who we rest. We pray in his name. Amen. Children of God, for your benediction, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.